When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Football Social Daily with German Donner Kebab. Fancy something different for tea? Get takeaway delivery now via Deliveroo and Uber Eats. Welcome to Football Social Daily. All the latest Premier League news in a podcast every day during the Premier League season. And that season is fast approaching. Under two weeks until we get underway with Manchester City versus Arsenal. We also now know which is going to be the first ever Premier League game broadcast on terrestrial television, which is pretty exciting. It's going to be Bournemouth versus Crystal Palace, which is a little bit less exciting. In my view, it's kind of like getting offered a packet of fruit pastels and then realising there's only green ones left in the bag. It's just a little bit disappointing at the end of the day. But we have got football back and it means the Football Social podcast will be back up to full speed very soon. Every single day of the week is the best way to keep abreast of the situation, of everything that's going on in the Premier League. I'm Jim and it's the AQA podcast today. All questions answered and helping me field those questions. We've got Ant McGinley. And Marley Anderson, welcome guests. Hello. Hello, good morning. So, if you've got a question for the AQA podcast, you can find us on social media, at the Sports Social on Twitter, Sports Social Official on Instagram, or just search Sports Social on Facebook and you can find us there, get your questions in for next week's show. Or you can cheat the system slightly by asking a question in a review that you leave on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast, just like Rohit the Man has done who's using a nice combination of guilt and bribery to get his question in this morning. And it's the one we're going to kick off with as well. Rohit's in Ireland, and he left a review on Apple Podcasts. The review reads, You guys are really good, and you know a lot about football. Rohit, thank you. Uh, But you are not good at answering my questions. Please can you talk about the five-club, sorry, the five-sub rule? And as flattery gets you pretty much anywhere, it's the first question we're going to do on today's podcast. So Rohit asked this question a couple of weeks ago, and we hadn't got round to it yet. He wanted to know how the five-sub rule, i.e. allowing Premier League clubs to use five subs in games, was going to affect teams and who would benefit most from that new rule. We now know, as of yesterday, that is a rule that's going to be implemented once the Premier League season gets back underway. But Marley, is it going to make any real difference? Uh, Yeah, I think it will. Um... 
I think the the main the main clubs that will will benefit from it are obviously the the bigger teams with the the more uh, stronger squads in terms of depth. You know, the likes of Liverpool will be able to uh, have a, a very very strong bench and make them even harder to to play against when they can bring you know players like Lalana, Shakiri, Minamino, Origi all off the bench in in one game without uh, without having to sort of spread the subs out of like you know like one defender one midfielder and two attackers as well as a goalie on the bench for example so it'll probably benefit quite well and I'm I'm glad the Premier League has uh has not been stubborn in this in this uh issue because I think with um a lot of the time with the English game it, it can be very stubborn and and traditional and a bit set in its ways so I, I am quite glad that they've seen this uh, strange circumstance and then said, right, okay, well, you clearly need more subs so you can have nine and then you can bring five off the bench at any one time. So it'll be better and I think it'll uh, it'll also benefit some younger players who are on the fringes of the uh, of clubs. If you think of, you know, people criticise Phil Foden for not getting games uh, very often. He'll probably get a little bit more game time with an extra sub, um, an extra two subs rule. Um, and the, the likes of like Curtis Jones at, at Liverpool as well, and there's a few uh, a few at Chelsea, which are you know they're, they're breaking at the seams with the amount of talented youngsters they've got coming through. If you think of Billy Gilmore mm. and Reese James and all the ones Hudson Odoi, all the all the guys that have come in this season, they've uh, they've really made an impact on the league. So I'm, I'm glad that that the Premier League has has ruled with the punches and and changed and uh, give teams a bit more chance because the last thing we want to see. Is a lot of football, but every team with half a squad, like as much as it's on them to to be prepared with their squads and be able to cope with an injury crisis, let's not have an injury crisis just for the sake of being stubborn. Then hmm. I'm glad the Premier League's actually changed and, and gone with this. And we know players are going to get injured as well because they haven't had a pre-season. They're coming back from no football to hugely congested fixture lists with maybe 80, 90 percent fitness and that will impact performances but at the same time it is going to impact the injuries that those players get and there shouldn't be a risk to personnel they should be able to play 70 minutes of a game and be substituted if that is the need but I guess I mean everyone's got the same size squad and they've all got a fixed squad but there are teams that have more depth and you'd probably say you might argue that Liverpool aren't one of those teams although I mean, maybe at the start of the season you would have argued that Liverpool didn't have the depth. They've kind of proved that maybe they do as the season goes on. But also the likes of Manchester City and Chelsea, they're going to potentially find this a little bit easier, being able to call on those fringe players a little bit more. Yeah, and I think actually Mali kind of hit it on the head a little bit. That, that when In Rohit's question, um, who will benefit most? I, I think who is the right question because I think it's going to be more individual players than actual um, teams that, that benefit from this like he's already mentioned Origi Phil Foden at Man City is, is bound to get a lot more game time out of this uh, the irony is going to be he's probably going to get more game time in this last six weeks of the season than he has in the rest of the season combined uh, b- because of not just the, having the five substitutes but the, the amount of fixtures that are close together um, I think th- there's so many things that are implied by this obviously there's an opportunity for um, there's an opportunity for uh, fringe players to get in also because of the impact that certain clubs have had in terms of their 
income they may not be able to go into the transfer window if we even have a transfer window in mm. the summer and so it's there's going to be a thing especially for you know we've got a lot of teams that aren't really playing for anything that are going to go through these games and so it's an opportunity for them to uh, bed in players for the next season try out new formations work around a lot of things so actually in terms of like if, if we take a more longer term view as to who this is going to benefit perhaps we're looking at the likes of um, Everton uh, particularly uh, w- with all the changes that they've had in, in recent seasons, still bedding in under that new manager. And perhaps this is their opportunity to really just really play. There's no pressure on them. They're not going to go Try down. Try new things. Go to- exactly. Yeah, maybe. I can see that a little bit. I think the, the big advantage for me, or the big thing I'm looking forward to, is Spurs. First game back being 2-0 down after 20 minutes and Mourinho just making all five subs. Just getting everyone off the pitch at once. I think that'd be spectacular. Thank you, Rohit, for your question. Thank you for your review as well. Like I say, it's a quite easy way to get your questions asked on the AQA podcast, but it's a nice way to tell us how we're doing as well. So however you listen to podcasts, leave us a little review and we'll give you a shout out on the podcast. So first proper question comes from Kieran on Twitter. And we've got a Manchester City fan in Ant on the show today. So I think I know where he's going to go with this one. He says, John Terry or Vincent Company? And which manager in the Premier League would you like to play for most? So two very quick questions. Let's go with the John Terry or Vincent Company question first. I'm assuming he means who would you rather play alongside rather than who would you like to go for a pint with? Because if it's going for a pint with, it is undisputably Vinny Company. I'd rather go for a pint with Donald Trump than than John Terry. He's probably probably got more progressive views as well, I would have thought. So let's go with the footballing aspect. Yeah, don't share a taxi home with him either. Um, Yeah, it's got to be Vinny Jones. I mean, everybody remembers that speech he gave on the table after after City came back and won the league again um, Mm. in the pub. And, you know, as a City fan, I just love him through and through. And he has been at the core of everything City achieved since 2010. He came in under uh, Mark Hughes, uh, which a lot of people forget him and Zavaleta at the same time. He actually came in as a defensive midfielder and adapted and moved forward. And he had the injury problems. We saw that towards the end of the career, but he just had such passion. And I suppose this is one thing that he has in common with John Terry, so I understand the comparison. That passion, that fight... um, but there's there's no way that I could ever choose uh, ever choose John Terry uh, uh, over 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 Vinny Company. The the interesting comparison is they they've both sort of moved into management now and have had similar levels of success. Obviously, John Terry <laughs> in his assistant role and things haven't gone so well for Vinny uh, going in as as player player manager in the area division and then having to uh, wiggle that around. In terms of who to play for, in terms of who you've got. Um, in, in the Premier League now and in the clubs. I think on a similar vein, um, Jurgen Klopp, just because he, he just, I just love him. He's just, mm. he, he just comes across as a really lovely man. I have the feeling that he would just be so supportive. Like I could, I, I could do something terrible and he'd come out and he'd support me and he'd have my back. I could break up with my girlfriend and he'd go, look, I've made the spare room up, come round. You know, I just get that vibe around and he just talks sense. In terms of management, though, in terms of actually on the pitch, um, I really like Graham Potter. And I've said this before and I've been picked at it before. And I, I, I love what Potter's doing at Brighton. And I, I know he's got his criticisms and they've struggled a little bit, but it looks like they're going to be all right for the rest of this season. And I, I think Potter has some real potential uh, for the future. Maybe not with Brighton, but in, in the future going ahead. So I'd play for a Potter. 
In terms of the player stuff, I mean, between John Terry and Vinnie Company, for me, there's so little between them. They were both rocks at the back. I mean, Vinnie Company was part of the spine of that Man City team when they won the league for the first time, and John Terry has just been a rock for Chelsea. I'm going to go John Terry purely because he wasn't injured quite as much. There was a little bit more reliability in there. So I'm hoping, Marley, you're going to you're going to have pretty much the deciding vote on this one We're between JK and JT and VK. Uh, yeah, I'm, it, I'm similar to you, Jim. It's it's very very close between them in terms of you know real rugged leaders and who you'd want. You you need a Terry or a company in your team. You need that type of character um, to really like pull the team along. But in terms of who would I who would I rate as a better player? I would probably I think with with the longevity and the lack of lack of injuries, I'd probably have to say Terry, just because he did it for, for twenty odd years. I mean, as a person, company mm. by a mile, obviously, but Terry as Terry as a player is is pretty much unprecedented in terms of, you know, best centre backs in the Premier League era of all time. He's up there. There's him and Rio Ferdinand maybe and you know very very few others companies probably in there as well to be fair if you if you're ranking the best in in Premier League history so Terry's probably top of it I I do I I can't stand a lot of the things he does you know the going off in his final game in the 26th minute uh, wearing his full kit for the um, for the Champions (laughs) League uh, lift or whatever it was and Racially, racially abusing Anton yeah, Ferdinand. all that stuff as well. Yeah. <laughs> little, little things, things like, that. like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Wayne Bridge. <laughs> there's so much. Stuff. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that. To be fair, if we're talking about things that John Terry has done, it's not Wayne Bridge. It was his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it's slightly different. Uh, yeah, but I mean, as a player, I'd, I'd probably have to have to go for him slightly above Company. If Company had done it for ten more years or, or five more years, I think. There would be more of a, you know, it'd be a genuine toss-up. But I think just about Terry edges it um, for me. But in terms of managers, I think who who would I like to play for? Well, firstly, any because it would mean I'm a Premier League footballer, and that'd be mint. Except John Dyche. Um, and then it's hard not to say Pep Guardiola, isn't it? It's I think players players have been around for years like and had a 10-year career on Europe or around England, even they would want to be managed by Pep Guardiola because it's supposedly so different from what other managers do. It's, it's another level of intensity and the amount of progression you can make in your game under, under him. I mean, many, many, many players have talked about it and and told stories of how they're, um, how they're transformed as a player under under his uh, guidance and, and ideas and stuff like that. So playing for a, a manager like that would be something that you would have to, to sort of aspire to. And um, even if you were a top player, I think even they want to experience the, the Guardiola effect, I think. So for me, it was like if it was if it was up to me, I mean, I'd rather pick Guardiola than Steve Bruce or, or Sean Dyche. So, you know what I mean? I, if you're going to do it, do it properly and go for, go for Pep. I don't think I'm intense enough or driven enough to work under Pep. I don't think I'm sadistic enough to That's work under thing, Mourinho. It would be so hard mm. under Guardiola, but He'd get the best if you stuck with it, you would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I think Nuno Espirito Sanchez seems like a man who it would be nice to work with. 
and you have to look at the the team morale and the spirit that that Wolves squad have got to you have to assume that comes from the top down he seems thoughtful he seems passionate I think there's a nice combination there got a good beard as well so uh, yeah I can see what you're saying about Pep Guardiola but I think uh Espirito Sanchez would probably be my man to work under let's crack on with the next question though Marley you've got the next one uh, yeah I do it's uh, it's coming from Oscar on uh, on Twitter and he's going to bring the mood slightly down on the podcast by asking what was the most heartbreaking moment for you watching football can I go first on this one because I was thinking about this recently and I, I wasn't I wasn't massively heartbroken watching it at the time but watching it back it is a heartbreaking moment because it was England going out of Italia 90. And I was slightly too young to properly appreciate that tournament when it was on. But watching it back, I mean, the final is remembered for Waddle's penalty miss. It's remembered for Gaza crying and like Gary Lineker going, watch him, watch him, to um, Bobby Robson. But I think what gets me is at the end of the match, and you don't often get this in the highlight stuff, if you watch the players at the very end, they are to a man... They are broken. They are devastated. They've left everything on the pitch and it really, really mattered to them. And it actually kind of gets me a little bit when I watch it, particularly Stuart Pearce, who obviously missed a penalty as well and then was devastated after that. But you can see him, he's crying and he's trying to wipe his eyes with his shirt. And there's a moment of commentary, and I think it was David Coleman who was commentating on that one. And he says something along the lines of, and I'll paraphrase, he says something like, oh, and there's Stuart Pearce crying. And I thought he was a real man, which, <laughs> which is shocking in the current. You couldn't that to I mean, me, could fast, you? no, fast forward thirty years, and it is completely out of order. But it's clearly a devastating moment, and for those players to be so open with their emotions on the pitch against that kind of backdrop, so that was how people felt about men crying at the time. It shows how much it hurt, and also I kind of like the redemption story as well of Stuart Pearce coming back in '96 and scoring that penalty against Spain that pretty much broke the net. So he exercised those demons. So I liked that comeback. But yeah, watch it. If you get the chance to go back and watch the end of Italia 90 after the final whistle, they are properly devastated players. In the commentator's defence, I I can appreciate his illusions of Stuart Pearce being broken because I also remember, I don't remember the exact game, but uh, I'm pretty sure um, Stuart Pearce took a studs-up challenge in between the legs and it knocked him to the floor. And he just got up and didn't even flinch. Just walked and carried on. And it was just like, that man is 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 hard as nails. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting that you mentioned that because when I, when I was thinking about this, these these moments always come when you're within grasp of glory, when you're within mm. grasp of something great. And that's, that's what makes it all the more painful. And the one I've gone for is my most recent experience. And it was the moment that I actually realized that football had changed and how it had changed under VAR. And that was uh, late, late, late into injury time at the Etihad, April the 17th, second leg, Man City against Tottenham. And Bernardo flicks the ball through, or the ball comes off Bernardo to Aguero, plays it over. Sterling with a hat-trick. It's the most amazing high I've ever experienced there's a man out there who I'd never seen before I've never seen since I was so excited I kissed him like he was my father (laughs) um so I I apologize to that man but there was such joy unbridled 
I, I, th- there's actually a, a, a Twitter video that I put out at the time because I was so excited. I thought something was going to happen. I could feel it in my water. And as, as the adrenaline subsides, I, I, I sit back down and then I see on the big screen VAR review. And I'd never seen that before. And I didn't mm. understand what it meant. And this sinking reality as it starts to dawn and the longer it goes on, the more you fear. And then the heartbreaking news that the goal has been disallowed. And this is after in the same game as well, uh, uh, Lorente's goal going in off his arm into the goal being awarded. Um, so that for me was real, real heartache. And I think it was more because of the rawness of the emotion I was in at that very moment. I thought we'd, I thought we were going to a Champions League semi-final again. I really thought we were, and and in the most glorious way. And the thing was, that was such a great game of football as well. It's possibly, not just in terms of Champions League, but in terms of football games that I've seen over nearly 30 years now, that has to be at least, at least in the top five. Poor old Man City, not winning another trophy. (laughs) (laughs) How about yours? I mean, as a Newcastle fan, Marley, you must have a fair few heartbreaking moments to recap. Yeah, well, to be fair, I could fill a podcast by myself with with all these <laughs> all these moments. Um, but the one that immediately uh, sprung to mind the, there was two actually, and it's it, but it's basically the same thing. It's the, the two times Newcastle have been, have been uh, relegated in the Premier League era, um, once in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and then again in in fifteen sixteen, we finished eighteenth both times and. The first one was when, uh, you know, Shearer was in charge for those final eight games, and it was absolute. It was just an absolute mess of a season. I mean, we had, <laughs> we had Joe here for for some of it, and he he opened his his whole uh, his whole ten. He opened his whole. <laughs> yeah, his tenure at Newcastle started with his first press conference when he said, uh, "Which one are you, Simon Bird?" And Simon put his hand up like a local journalist and he said, you're a <laughs> 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 And he just, he just literally, and I thought, we're in trouble here with this at least, At least he got his name right, because wasn't there one of the first team players he oh, could yeah, his name right? Mate, how many? He said, he called Johan, <laughs> he called Johan Kabai, Johan Kebab. <laughs> um, he called uh, Charles and Zogbia, Charles Insomnia. <laughs> 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 Honest to God, it was an absolute mess. Oh, wow. So when we went down, it was it was just a culmination of, of, of things he'd done wrong, and then obviously Shearer gets panned with it because it was technically him that got us got us relegated with being in charge for the final eight games. But he, he never had a chance to be honest with that team. We had we had Michael Owen, Mark Viduka. Um We had a, a few few good players in that team. I think Kevin Nolan was there as well. Um, but we we were rubbish. Michael Owen didn't didn't fancy it. He he was rather he would rather mess around with his horses and keep his groin uh, like not injured so he could get another club afterwards. Um, so that one was that was a bit uh, galling. And then uh, and then again in fifteen sixteen when we went down again due to um, you know bad leadership and just a weird bad squad really. Uh, in terms of not being. Together, it was a very sort of fractured squad, and mm. a few players had their eyes on on other things. Um, funnily enough, I think I think Genio Wijnaldum got us. He scored us about ten or eleven goals that season. He was actually one of the the bright lights, and it was proof that we had talent in that squad, but no one, nobody to 
to actually bring them together and you know get the best out of them. So that wasn't a, that wasn't a good a good thing. But again, we had Steve McLaren in charge, um, and the less said about that, the better. I mean, at least he didn't call anyone naughty names in press conferences. But <laughs> he still he still wasn't great, and he still was very much the Wally with the Broly. So yeah, then those two stick out for me. Right, let's go. One more question before we take a little break. And uh, yeah, I'm going to go for this one from Fred on Instagram, which is quite uh, an interesting one, but also a depressing one for me because this can happen if City lose against Arsenal. Uh, if Liverpool win their first game back and clinch the title, would they carry on with their first team or rest them all? Bear in mind that they're out of the Champions League as well. It's hmm. a weird one, this, isn't it? Because Liverpool could conceivably play one game. And then send their entire first team squad on a on a holiday, on a pre-season holiday and say, look, we're not going to have a, a big pre-season because yeah. of everything that's happened and, and what have you. So as soon as you win that one game, you can all go away and uh, you know get get some rest and have some downtime ahead of the ahead of the the next season because the travel ban's slightly getting reduced a little bit now. Players could go back to their home countries if they wanted, you know, Firmino and what have you could go back to Brazil and, and see the family and things like that that they probably haven't done for probably well, close to a year some of them so yeah it's, it's an interesting one they could they could go through you know they, they like to talk about the under 23s team in the uh, in Merseyside region don't they and how, how amazing they are so maybe give them a few uh, a few chances in the Premier League I think they beat um, who did they beat in the Carlin Cup I can't remember what it was uh, Villa no, they lost to Villa, didn't they? They got smashed by Villa. They beat someone else. I think it was a championship team or something, but there's clearly okay. talent there anyway. They, they, did they beat Everton in the FA Cup? They did beat, yeah, a few few kids played in that game as well. So, yeah, it's, it, it's conceivable, isn't it? I mean, they could easily you know, rest the players. I don't think they will. I think they'll, I think they'll carry on, but... I don't think they can. I don't think they can purely from the fact that this is already, and I'm going to really upset Liverpool fans by saying this is a tainted title. And it is. It's going to have an asterisk next to it in the in the history books. I mean, from the things like the five sub rule we've talked about to the reduced fixture list or the um, the con- condensed fixture list, it isn't playing out like a normal Premier League season, and so it won't be classed as a normal Premier League title. If they then win the game, they have to. So if City lose to Arsenal, then they go on and beat Everton and they clinch the title. And then go, right, that's it. We're going to play our kids for the rest of the tournament. They will get hammered. They will get absolutely rinsed for that. So I think they have to approach the rest of the season with a straight back. They have to be serious about it because they need almost to get up to that 100 points or score a record-breaking amount of goals to kind of keep that credibility alongside winning the title. That said, I completely get what you're saying, Marley, and we're likely to have, what, a two-week break or something between the end of this season and the beginning of next season. There's not going to be much time for players to recuperate. There's not really going to be any kind of pre-season. So they will need to rest key players. So I think we'll end up seeing like a little bit of a mix. So we will see a few of those fringe players getting more games. We will see squad rotation. But the idea that they just go, right, Mo and Jordan and Virgil, get you off on holiday for two weeks. We're going to play the kids I think I can't see that happening for the credibility of the club I I mean there's there's two interesting things here for me first of all the the rumours are that Liverpool aren't going to sign anybody in the summer transfer window they've just uh, 
lost out on Timo Werner, and it looks like they're mm-hmm. not going to go for for anybody else. Which um, everyone thought was a done deal. Yeah, um, the almost odds on for the likes of Lalana to be leaving as well, and so there is opportunity. There is room in the in the squad um, for for people to come through, and as we've seen. They've got a great under twenty one squad on there, which I think under Premier League rules that that they basically qualify for being able to play on top of the twenty five man squad. Am I right with that? Yeah. So yeah, they, anyone they, under twenty three can can play for free. I think. Uh, I, which is quite yeah, useful to them because that includes the likes of uh, Trent Alexander Arnold. He's still uh, technically on the under twenty one squad, which kind of gives them that extra player in their first team. Um, so. There is a wonderful opportunity for them to do that. When they have done it, you've seen them uh, uh, blood in sort of fairly seamlessly. Um, I, I'm not sure what they'll do. I mean, because because the other issue that they've got here is 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 we're not even sure how long a gap we're going to get in between the end of the season and the start of the next season. The one positive thing is that uh, they're not going to have to worry about playing a Champions League game because uh, they're already out of that. So that does count in their favour. Previously, we've seen... Uh, Klopp had no qualms in, in resting people to, to, to go for, for for other competitions. Um, I, I think the big impact really in terms of Jim saying it being a tainted season, I, I think in terms of the history books, you're right, it's always going to have the asterisk next to it. And uh, the, the likes of other fans like myself as Man City and New West Ham and Mali, Newcastle, wherever you go to, they'll always say, yeah, but, you know, there was this thing. But I think it's going to be tainted for the Liverpool fans more than anyone. Uh, and I know what that's like. That Aguero moment, I'm not going to you know, try and pretend to make out that I was there because I wasn't. I was on a cruise ship uh, in Southampton, sailing out of Southampton in that Aguero moment, watching it in my cabin on my own. And while mm. it was a glorious moment to see that, and it was so long coming, and I loved it so much, and it's still one of my favourite memories... I was on my own. I was on my own. There was nobody else there to celebrate it with. I wasn't with my crew. I I, I wasn't able to go out and celebrate it and go uh, to the parade or to the street party. I was I was not there for it. And that is a situation that they're not going to have just for one fan, which I'm sure that happens anytime any club wins a trophy. There's going to be somebody like me that happens to. But this is for every single Liverpool fan, and that's really going to smart. Um, so in terms of what do they do, I, you know what? I don't think they'll complain. Whatever happens, I think Klopp could literally just play the same first team for the rest of the season. Everybody love him. He could play, you know, get that win that he needs and then rest the rest everybody else, as you said, and just play youngsters all the way. And Liverpool would mm. still, you know, tear teams apart. They really, really would. So I, 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 the, I, the answer is... I don't know, but I don't think it's going to make a difference one way or the other. I don't think it'll make much difference to Liverpool fans, what he does. I think it's the perception outside of that. And that will become wearing at some point. That will be reflected in how this title is perceived for Liverpool in the future, I think. We'll have to wait and see how that pans out. We're going to take a little break in a moment. But as we've said, Premier League season is back. 17th of June, the very first game. And you can catch up with all the action from those games, courtesy of Sports Social. If you miss them on telly, you want to catch the latest action. An hour after each game, we have a full match report available on our Alexa skill, on our Google action, 
and via our website. You can get the Alexa skill if you've got an Alexa just by saying Alexa Open Sport Social. If you've got a Google Action, say Google Talk to Sport Social. If you go to the website, you can find it. It's www.sport-social.co.uk. You can find all the latest news and reports for every single Premier League team there. Right, we'll be back in a moment with the next few questions from our AQA show. Football Social Daily with German Donner Kebab. Get it delivered to your door via Deliveroo or Uber Eats. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily. It's the AQA show. We are answering your questions. These are always my favourite shows of the week. Some brilliant questions coming in. Going to kick off the second half with a question from... Mike Rotter, which is a great name, on Instagram. It's an old question, but you know what? It's a good question as well. And it's uh, been kicked off, I think, by a little bit of internet debate this week, particularly on this topic. His question is simply, Lampard, Scholes or Gerrard? Now, we haven't got a Chelsea fan, a Liverpool fan or a Manchester United fan on today's show, which is probably a good thing. It means we can look at this a little bit objectively. Who wants to go first on this one? The first thing that comes to mind when you give this question is it just feels like the kind of question that would be posed at uh, an England press conference <laughs> in terms of who they were going to who they were going to play in midfield. <laughs> and there was always this constant thing of like, who could you play? Uh, when we have time now to look back at it and you, you put aside your differences and the things that happened and obviously, you know, um, cards on the table... Uh, I always liked Lampard, and especially such a place in, for him in my heart after what he did at uh, Man City and New York City as well, uh, which was just superb. And and honestly, when that happened as well, it was just one of those moments when everybody looked at Chelsea and went, really? And since then, we've realised that this is something that Chelsea do. They tend to let go of players and then they become better and go elsewhere. Um <laughs> I think when you look back at it now, though, there were all such incredible players uh, in terms of their influence on games, their skill levels, their ability, and and also for the for the most part, they they managed to be fairly good role models, which is you know relatively rare for a lot of footballers at that time. So mm-hmm. like, th- there's, I'm struggling to think of one negative story about any of them, and. They were all captain material. They were all high standard internationals that the Premier League is 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 such a great thing to have had them and to have them as homegrown English talent as well is is, is a source of great pride for for any Premier League fan. You're doing a brilliant job here and uh, not answering the question in any oh, yeah. way. Oh yeah, so <laughs> the answer is you told us why they're all great. So which ones? The which one are Honestly, you picking? I love what you're having. That's that's my answer. I would take any of them. <laughs> you don't know, right. Marley, have you got an idea on this one? Uh, I do, yeah. I'm, I'm absolutely staggered he's managed to sit on the edge of a three-way fence there and not actually say... <laughs> I've never seen that before. Um, yeah, for me, I've, you know, we've everyone's had this conversation. It's, it's typical. The one you ask your mates down the pub and you ask on... You've heard it on podcasts and on socials and, and everything before and it... There's mm. never a clear answer, but there's always everyone's opinion. And for me, there's there's a ranking for me. Um, in my opinion, I think Gerard's the best of the three um, for the mm-hmm. reasons that I think it's so thin between Gerard and Lampard. But the fact that Gerard could, 
he had I think he had a more round game to him. I think you could play Gerard at left back and he'd still be a massive like one of the best players on the pitch. I think if you um if you needed him, he was there and there's no bigger example of that than the, than the Champions League final uh, in 2005. I think he ended up playing right back in that game at, at one point and, uh, and absolutely mm. bossed it. He was just one of them where he would drag a team through um, through when they when they really needed it most and, and that for me, with his uh, his all-round game, he could score goals, he, could, he was good in the air, he could put tackles in, he had just endless energy. Um, so for me, I think he's the best. Closely followed by Lampard, uh, uh, yeah, Lampard, with his his goal record is is insane. His um, his professionalism is is work rate. I don't think earlier in his career he was he's not necessarily the most talented player, but he worked the hardest. And I think hard work gets you such a long way mm. in football that, it, and he's like a real a real testament to that. He's genuinely a, a fantastic professional, and he got to the very very top of the game. Won Champions Leagues, won league titles, won FA Cups, um, and then was part of that England setup that couldn't sort out uh, having three talents in midfield. But for me, I think Skulls, I'm going to annoy a few Man United fans. Skulls, for me, in this discussion, is a distant third for me. I don't think he had enough to his game compared to the other two. He's a great passer, fine. Was he? He couldn't tackle. He wasn't very fast. He wasn't. He just. He just had less to his game than the other two. I just don't think he was. He was there, in terms of uh, up there with the other two. Um, and for, for I agree uh, with you. I think. I think I, you're right. It's. It's like based on the re- the reputation he had is almost outstrips him as a player. And I think the the way he was talks about people have sort of said that if he was Brazilian he would have been one of the greatest players of a Brazilian generation and Fergie's obviously massively praised him in the past and he was hugely wasted by England and I think that's all added into this almost myth around Paul Scholes that elevates him onto a level playing field with Lampard yeah, and Gerrard. I think if you look at you know I mentioned um you know influence with with Gerrard and the way he could drag teams through it uh in the Man United teams in the great Man United teams of the early 2000s and the late 1990s the player that did that was Roy Keane, and he had the the temperament to mm-hmm. to pull his team through when they were playing badly. I don't think Skulls was that character, and I don't think that's a, a, a necessarily a bad thing for him. I don't think you need that, but in terms of what the other two had, I think they could do that more than him. Um, and I think, look, let's be honest. There's there's many 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 managers and coaches that have. That are more qualified to talk, you know, about who is the the best or the worst of these three, um, than than us three on the podcast. But and you've got to remember that, like, there was a reason why Skulls got shafted out to the left wing for England, and it was because he played there a little bit for Man United, which which people forget. But also, it was the fact that he didn't want to lose Gerard and Lampard in the centre because they had more to the game in the term in the in the four four two flat flat midfield that every every England team played in that in that era Gerard and Lampard were the better athletes they were the ones that could get up and down the pitch better than Scholes and for that reason Scholes with his passing was moved out to the left uh, left of midfield and didn't really embrace it do you think there's an element of personality in here as well in terms of like what you heard about them like I I never really remember 
uh, even when Skulls was interviewed post-match, him ever saying much of anything. And maybe that was just, you know, the way he was taught under Ferguson. Whereas uh, Lampard's... Yeah, Lampard's He's always just a been very quiet more, bloke. more eloquent. Uh, Gerard's always been very passionate. And so maybe is it just a case that because he's been quiet and then he's been in a team with such other giants as well that he's kind of been, you know, forgotten about almost. Maybe he wasn't the quite the same leader. And I've, I've never met Gerard or Lampard, but I have met Paul Scholes and he is just a very quiet, understated bloke. He's not the big character in the room, which probably does make a difference in terms of leadership. And certainly on the pitch, at least, Gerard for me, had that. He was the player that would drag... Liverpool through games and I think back to the FA Cup final where Liverpool beat West Ham on penalties drew 3-3 that was Steven Gerrard won that trophy pretty much on his own and I don't think I don't remember an occasion where Scholes did it all by himself I'm probably wrong and Manchester United fans as you say Marley will have a difference of opinion here but I don't remember him doing that all himself necessarily and you look at the stats as well and Gerrard and Lampard there's not a massive amount of difference between them when you look at the assists and goal contributions and goals, whereas Skulls is very much a distant third. But the most telling for me, and the thing that I kind of looked at to help me make a decision as to who I thought was going to be out front on this one, was Ballon d'Or nominations. And obviously, I know Ballon, the Ballon d'Or is kind of, it's a bit of a joke trophy anyway. No one really cares that much about it, but it is voted for by people within the footballing world. And if you look, none of them ever won the Ballon d'Or. But if you look at the Ballon d'Or nominations, so the number of votes they've had when they've been up for the award, Gerard has two uh, 220 votes across his six nominations, I think. Lampard has 169 votes, so a lot less than Gerard. Guess how many Paul Scholes have? Over five, he was nominated five times. Guess how many votes he got from his footballing peers? Four. Twelve. None. Wow. None. Not never got a single but vote. See, that, I mean, that, he might have been. It was up against different players, obviously, but. But that fits into to what I was saying about the personality, because something like the Ballon d'Or is is there's a lot of PR that goes with it. There's a reason why, you know, that Ronaldo's always up for it, and not just because of how well he plays on the pitch, but he's constantly in people's heads and his minds and the things that he says mm. and the things that he does. And Skulls never had that. Yeah. So me and Marley have gone. Gerard Ant's gone. Some kind of. Love child between Lampard, Scholes, and Gerard. I love what you're okay. And you've got the next question. Yeah, this is from Axnand uh, Seven. Axnand Seven on Instagram says, "Which teams should go all out in the transfer window to get into Europe?" And secondly, uh, what do Arsenal need to do to get into that top four again? Uh, so he's answered his own question, doesn't he? <laughs> Arsenal, well, we need to go all out to get into the top four. Is the answer? Move on, next one. Yeah. Well, uh, the interesting thing—I don't know if you saw this—but last month, the Evening Standard, it's a big paper in London, asked its readers, "In which position do you think that Arsenal need to strengthen?" <laughs> and when, whenever I've seen this kind of thing before, you, you know, it's kind of gone like defense, midfield, or up front. You know, mm. straightforward you can run it on twitter you've got the three options um i'm pretty sure the evening standard ran through every available position on the field <laughs> and variations of within as well <laughs> which wow. kind of says its own story so um let's let's start with arsenal then what do arsenal need to do to be 
back in that rightful spiritual home of always finishing in the top four. I mean, it's a massive rebuild at Arsenal at the moment, isn't it? And they're going to have to invest in order to get that playing staff. I think they've made some really good early progress. They've got who I think is the right manager. We've talked about Mikel Arteta and his potential. And I think he is the right man to take Arsenal to the next level. But they are so short. And you know, the evening standard's kind of right. They are so short in every department, particularly if you look at players who could be leaving the club, like Aubameyang and Lacazette, which is arguably their strongest position at the moment. They're going to have to invest mm. in in that position as well. So I think it is a complete rebuild and how they approach that will be really interesting and it will be a telltale sign of the club's aspirations because I imagine that Mikel Arteta is going to want players of a certain type in the same way that Pep Guardiola does. He's a student of Pep Guardiola so you can imagine he's going to want those certain players and those certain players from what we've seen at Manchester City, don't come cheap. In fact, they all come at a fixed price point of around 50 million quid. So Arsenal are going to need to put their hands in their pockets if they are going to support Arteta, give him the players he wants and challenge for that top four. It's a massive job and it won't be done this transfer window. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with, with what Jim said. I think Arsenal need... There's a lot of bad eggs at Arsenal, in my opinion, and there's a lot of issues they need to sort out before they can even start going forward. Um I think, you know, Lacazette looks bound to, to leave. Um, Aubameyang, his future's up in the air. I think they need to get that nailed down one way or the other. I don't think teams with, with ambition should be selling their captain and top scorer because he's running out of time and he's run, his contract's running down. I don't think you should ever be mm. in that position where you're letting a guy's contract run down who's so important to you. So they need to get that sorted. Um, as, is, as has been the way since probably... You know, going back ten years now, I think Arsenal need the defence sorted out. They need uh, a solid, a solid uh, back four, and the centre back partnership needs work. Obviously, they've got William Saliba coming in this uh, this summer. Whenever that happens, um, he looks good. But it, it, you know, it's a new. He's a young kid. He's he's coming to a new country. It's a different way of playing. So there's no guarantees over him. David Luiz is a bit older. Um, still erratic and all over the place. Mustafi's a car crash. Socrates looks okay. Um, Tierney, once he gets over his injury problems, might be all right. <laughs> Bellerin's there. He's solid enough. So there's things with which to build on, but the defence is needs work. And I think the midfield is all over the place as well. I think you know Xhaka's had his problems last uh, last year with you know fighting his own fans and what have you. Um, Ceballos has has started well but gone off the boil. Um, Genduzi in midfield looks okay, but is a bit, you know, he's a bit hot and cold. And if you look at it, just everywhere, there's not really one place where you say they don't need work there. Even Nicolas Pepe's been hot and cold as well. I mean, he looks like a decent player, and hopefully he'll he'll settle down to be very good. But you look at the um, the stuff they need. They they need a lot of money. They need to spend a fair bit of money to, to sort all this out because I think there's there's not a position other than goalkeeper where you'd look at Arsenal and go, they're, they're great there. There's only Leno in goal where you look and say he doesn't need, they don't need anything in, in that department. I think everywhere else you could really look at and uh, and maybe that's why the, the observer in London was uh, listing all the positions because they need a lot of work, I think. I think there's actually only one club that will go big 
this summer or potentially only one club like we said earlier in the podcast Liverpool have said they won't do any business I think Manchester City might make a few acquisitions I think Chelsea might bring some players in we want to know they're bringing in Werner but I think Manchester United are probably the team that need to invest most heavily and will be able to still invest heavily because we are invent we are creating sorry we are going into a financial crisis we know there's going to be a very short window and that any transfers that do happen are probably going to have a premium on them. But Manchester United still need players and they need to get back to the top of their game quickly. They might still qualify for the top four this season. In fact, I think they probably will still qualify for the top four this season. But we, they still need a centre-back. They still need a left-back. And most pressing of all, and the one that's really going to cost them, is they need a 20-goal-a-season striker. Desperately. And that doesn't come cheap. I mean... We all know that Lukaku didn't quite work for him and they've offloaded him. So they need to go out in Europe and find someone who can hit the ground running and will reliably get them goals. And it's going to be a huge investment for them. So I think, I mean, it feels crazy to say that Manchester United need to invest heavily to get into the top four. But I think that's exactly the situation they find themselves in. I think they've got to be careful and look at Arsenal as an example, actually, because Arsenal are kind of, you know could turn into another Man United or Man United could turn into an Arsenal if you see what I mean because they're, they're both kind of still recovering from legacy managers if you will and it's taken them a while to, to settle down United's slightly ahead of the curve on that one but I, you know I, I think that there's danger for both these teams to, to drop right down I think you're right I think in terms of who's there and, and the options of getting into to Europe I mean the only the only other two possibilities in terms of teams that we're looking at, well, three uh, if you include Sheffield United, but their budget and wedge structure is going to rule them out of, of spending that kind of cash, um, would be Wolves, who financially pretty stable, but I still think they're um, sort of paying off the, the cost of the squad that got them up to the Premier League. And then Tottenham would only be the other option. But the problem with Tottenham have got is they've spent all their cash on a very, very nice but expensive stadium, which mm. went up late, which cost them money. They had to pay more money to get it finished. And now it's sat empty, which is not uh, and costing them more money. So I, I And they just had to take a £175 million loan from the Bank of England to help support yeah. them financially. So it's difficult to see them then investing heavily in a playing squad. Yeah, so I think you're right. It's United is... The, the, the club that are going to spend if we even get a transfer window of any sort. Mm. Marley, let's do one more question and you've got this one. Yeah, I've got the uh, the last question and it's from uh, Brandon on Instagram who's uh, messaged and said, which Premier League club will struggle the most if they stay up next season? <laughs> so it's a bit, okay. a bit of a weird one. So who's not going to go, who's not bad enough now to go down, but who's going to struggle next year? So... Go on, Jim, get your head around that one. West Ham. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if we don't go down this season. I mean, there's, there's two clubs that I think you need to watch now, and it is still any if they stay up. One's West Ham, because I think there are really worrying noises coming from the club right now in terms of the financial situation that the club is in. Their need to sell players. There was a rumour that there was no player that would be labelled as unavailable in the forthcoming window because they need to balance the books somehow. There's also going to be an unwillingness to extend contracts of players that are coming to the end of their contract or on loan. So I think that's going to cause them issues. 
obviously those players will need to be replaced somehow and I can't see the club investing massively in bringing in new players as well. So a club that struggled this season is going to be depleted for next season and I think that is going to be a massive problem for West Ham. Also, you've got the David Moyes factor. I mean, very few people, not saying, I mean, I'm not saying he means relegation, but I think there's very few people that are convinced that he is the future of the club right now. I think his contract expires at the end of the season and there's an option to extend it. And I can't necessarily see the club investing massively in a, another option when they have David Moyes already in place, who you'd imagine was a reasonably cheap option, given, given what came before his move to West Ham. Uh, so I think those things could lead to something very sticky and very treacherous for West Ham, just a lack of investment, a need to offload financially and a manager who maybe isn't up to the job. It doesn't sound particularly good, does it? And the other club that I think could be uh, maybe in trouble next season, again, if they stay up, is Bournemouth. Um, And I think it's all down to Eddie Howe. And I don't know whether it's better if he stays or goes. which is the slightly strange scenario because it feels like Bournemouth are a club that need a new challenge at the moment. They need to kind of move on and develop. Things have stagnated under Howe. And although he's undoubtedly a brilliant manager and has got the best out of Bournemouth for years, it feels like they're ready to move to the next stage. But at the same time, that transition period is really dangerous. And we've seen it with clubs time and time again. They'll bring a new manager in, they'll try playing a new way and it won't quite work and it'll fall down to around, around there is. We saw it with Hasenhutl, uh, Southampton for the first half of this season. The difference is if they bring that new manager in, if they bring a new way of playing in and they don't necessarily have the money to spend because of the financial situation we've talked about, how long will it take him to settle without the big pre-season? And when those results finally come, could it be too late? So their option is they twist, they get a new manager and they maybe reinvigorate the club. They stick with Eddie Howe, and they continue to stagnate in the way they apparently have this season. So I think Bournemouth and West Ham are two teams that could be in sticky situations at the end of next season. I think you're right on that one. I think looking at the teams around them, um, I I think Brighton have got enough to just stay clear. Watford, I, I, I put my mortgage on them which would be a risky thing to do, but I don't have a mortgage. Um, so <laughs> Watford, uh, Watford, I think, have, have enough in the momentum to to sort of scrape through and stay up, which will be a remarkable uh, survival. And I've been criticised for saying this before, but I really do see that happening. Um, but Bournemouth, I think, if, if they do somehow manage to stay up, they're still... I, I can't see it going right. And I think you're right. It's, it's down to Eddie Howe. Um, this... This season, there's something, something's gone on with him because he's aged and he never has aged before and it's just hit him and whether that's been the stress caused by pressure at the club with more injuries, whether there's been other stuff going on in his own life that we don't know about, but he's not seen as cool, as suave, as calm and collected. I mean, people were talking about him, you know, taking over at Arsenal. To be honest, a few years ago, you could have said Eddie Howe for the next James Bond and I would have gone, yeah actually you know he he had all those qualities you could see but i i think they've had a terrible season for injuries they've there's been a few decisions where oh, maybe they should have sold that player and taken the money and they didn't and it hasn't quite worked out um i i just think that as bournemouth fans they're going to be in for the same next season if they stay up 
they are going to find themselves struggling around the bottom three. And they won't have, um, I don't know if you caught this interview, um, not much solace for any Bournemouth fans listening to the radio because Eddie Howe was interviewed about homeschooling his sons um, during the uh, the lockdown. And he mentioned the fact that his maths is, isn't as strong as he thought, which is quite worrying when you think a lot of his job is based around calculating how many points he needs <laughs> and how much to spend on various players. So that possibly could explain. So maybe there's a simple solution in this and we just bring a tutor in for Eddie. <laughs> Solve all the problems. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, Bournemouth as well. And yeah, you know, they've been in the Premier League for four years now and they've always been like a good team to watch and, and never really troubled sort of the top half and they finished ninth one year um in 16 17 and then since then it's been 12th and 14th and if you look at that they're going backwards i mean they're in a relegation fight at the minute they're 18th at the minute so if your last three clubs you know your last three league finishes are 12th 14th and then 18th and relegation that doesn't it's strange that eddie howe still is like he's unsackable, like considering what he's done with the, with the club, which is absolutely fair enough. You know, he's taken from all the way from League uh, League Two into League One, and then Championship, and then the Premier League, and a club the size of Bournemouth. No disrespect to intended, but they they are a small club, and but once you've been in the Premier League for four years, you have to you can't stand still, other because everyone's going to get better and better and better. And you're going to get left behind, and I think that's what's happening with Bournemouth. They're, they're standing still too much for me, and they're they're not changing enough. Mm. I mean, they're just sort of they seem to be like hoping that this way of playing will eventually get them into the top half. And I'm not really as much as I'd like it to because it, it's they they play good football and they they do things the right way. I think they haven't had the level of investment needed to move forward. Um, I don't think you can really do it. Just with a good manager, you need you need good players, you need good signings. The signings haven't really been good enough. They spent fifteen million on Solanke, he's he's rubbish. Fifteen million on Jordan Ibe, he's leaving for free at the end of the season. They're <laughs> losing Ryan Fraser for free at the end of the season. Uh, they've spent spent a decent amount of money, and none of it's really worked. Um, so for me, you've got to look at you've got to look at Bournemouth. Have have got to change something, otherwise they will get sucked into it and and dragged down into the um back into the championship but what about your team marley because newcastle are in a situation where and we're seeing today more rumors that the premier league are minded to reject the saudi takeover if that happens then newcastle are in a sticky situation as well aren't they because i mean they've struggled this season you've got an owner who doesn't like investing huge money but who is going to be taking a financial hit on his business elsewhere as well because of the lockdown on the coronavirus crisis. So there could be a real situation potentially similar to West Ham where you have to up offload key players, but there's a reluctance to bring in new yeah, players. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? With every... This is if the, if the takeover doesn't go through, obviously. Well, that's the, that's the you know, £350 million pound question. Um, <laughs> will, will the takeover go through? It's been mooted for what five weeks now it's mm. it's on the verge of, of being completed we're, we're well past that two to four weeks um period where they might say yes and they might say no so i've, I've got no idea what's going on in terms of uh of the premier league approving the the takeover or whatever but 
you know, it's it's just one of them, isn't it? It's like everything depends on that because Mike Ashley is a businessman. He doesn't he doesn't rate football as a way of making money. You don't make you don't make money in football in, in when you're an owner. Like it's not it's not instant profit unless you do something massive, unless you you win a cup or you win a league or you get into Europe. It's it's the money comes in, money that comes in gets spent again on infrastructure and wages and and playing staff and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's a vanity project now, football. Yeah, and Ashley Ashley knows that, and he's always ran it as a business. Uh, Newcastle, he's always he's he's seen he's seen a potential profit in the club back in two thousand and uh, two thousand seven when he when he came in. Um, he's probably made that profit, providing the sale goes through. Without the sale, he then stays running things as they were and and we can't hide the fact that Newcastle weren't going forwards when um the season was was happening i mean we spent a little bit last summer spent 60 70 million or whatever but it hasn't really worked we lost uh, a top manager and replaced him with a poor manager and that would only there would be proof in the pudding if the um if the takeover didn't go through and we ended up you know, going backwards and and being in a bit of trouble next season if if that happens. So, hopefully, the um the takeover goes through and we can actually look forward and, and be sort of a force that actually wants to wants to compete in the league. Because without that, we're just going to be another in a similar situation to Bournemouth. Mm. And on that cheery note, let's uh, wrap up the <laughs> Football Social Daily podcast. If you are inspired to ask a question on next week's AQA podcast, you can do so via our social media channels. As Chief Social Media Monkey, Marley, uh, would you like to tell us what channels they are? Uh, yeah, just uh, search Sport Social on uh, Facebook or there's at the Sport Social on Twitter and there's Sport Social Official on Instagram. Nice one. Thank you very much, Marley. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ant. Thank you. Subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. We'll be back up to seven podcasts a week as of next Wednesday, so make sure you've hit subscribe before that happens because football is back and we'll see you next time on Football Social Daily. Hooray! Football Social Daily with German Donner Kebab. Kebabs done right and delivered right to you via Uber Eats and Deliveroo. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.